take our Bibles now and open them to Galatians chapter 2. And this evening we're looking once again at the first ten verses in this chapter. And owing to your continued patience with me, I'm uh, spending some time explaining the importance of this first part of this chapter. And so tonight what I'd like to do is to is try to just fill in a little bit more of the gaps in this sort of winding, twisting narrative that Paul gives us in this uh, beginning of the second chapter. So we'll go to our text verses, and uh, this evening I just want to read, uh, I'll read the first six verses because that's mostly where we're going to spend our time again this evening. So beginning in verse number one, Then fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privately to, uh, privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no not for an hour." that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter uh, maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Now, if you'll notice again the last part of verse number 6, Paul says, For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Now, let's let's start here tonight, which is the sixth point on your outline, which is the conference at Jerusalem. And we've been kind of dancing around this uh, conference for quite some time now, and we're going to take a very brief look at the beginning of it this evening in just a few minutes, and then in the following sermons we'll look at that much more closely. But the purpose of Paul uh, going on this trip was the conference with the Jews or with the apostles rather on the on the doctrine of justification and to confirm to those that opposed him that he and the apostles in Jerusalem were preaching the same gospel. Now I would like you to turn to Acts chapter 15 and this is where uh, we find the historical record of this conference that Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 2. And as I said a moment ago we're, we're going to look just briefly at this at the at the beginning of this conference and then in the next lesson and those afterwards we'll we'll take this up in more detail but in Acts chapter 15 beginning in verse number 1 uh, we see where the idea of a conference came from and certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses ye cannot be saved when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. Now, that's the background for Galatians 1 and 2. The, the argument with the Judaizers had become so intense that it began to seriously affect the church in Antioch. And so the church there decided that they would send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem and they would take up this matter with the apostles and get their opinion, get what they have to say, and then they would relate that information back to the church at Antioch. Now, I mentioned before just how important it is to understand these verses because Paul is arguing here in this section for the establishment of authority. 
Who has the authority to preach the gospel? And what are the doctrines of the faith? And, and how do we actually know the doctrines of the faith are true? And that's very important because we have hundreds of denominations. There are so many doctrines that are involved in the Christian faith. There are multiple ideas about how to interpret certain scriptures. And so with all these denominations to deal with, all the different interpretations, then you, you can surely understand why there is so much confusion over the things that are in the Bible. Now, there are people who teach things that are close to what we teach. Now, you listen to them, and it doesn't sound like it's very far off. It sounds nearly the same, or maybe you even think, well, that, that's the same thing. And the difference between what they teach and what we teach may not be readily apparent, but it's so easy that, that, uh, to, to confuse, and, and the differences in our doctrines can really turn a good doctrine into a dangerously condemning doctrine. And, and this is the case with this doctrinal discussion of Galatians. The core issue here is justifying faith. Is the faith that justifies dependent upon the object of faith and the object of faith alone? Or is there something that has to be added to it? Now, to say that in another way, is the object of faith or the object of faith is Christ, is faith in him alone enough? Or do we have some kind of a formula that we have to ascribe to? Is there some steps or something else that we have to go through? Something else added to faith in order to be right with God. So essentially, that is the argument of Galatians. Now, later, we are going to get into the particulars of justifying faith. It's the most foundational and important doctrine of the Bible. But for now, there's another issue that, that's on the, uh, right here in the text for us, and that is the question about Paul's apostleship. Is he really an apostle of Christ? Does he have the authority to teach a gospel that does not include works as part of the means of justification? In this case, of course, the particular doctrine is circumcision. Is that a part of being saved? Now, we're quite familiar by now, the, the way that Paul sought to establish his authority and vindicate his apostleship, and he does this in several of his letters because this is just an ongoing problem. I mean, Paul is always being questioned about this. That's because he wasn't one of the original 12 uh, apostles. He wasn't called in the same way that they were called. He was a persecutor of Christians, and so the question is, can we really trust him to tell us the truth on this, on this issue of justification? Now, in, in other letters, uh, he did vindicate his apostleship, but there's no place where he really attacks these questions in, in such a straightforward and, and a strong manner as he does here in Galatians. Now, as a reminder then of, of some of the points that I made in the previous messages, uh, the main argument that Paul made in the first chapter is his complete independence from outside sources that could have given him, given him the doctrines of Christ. Now, he, he says, he maintains that the gospel was given to him by a direct revelation from God. And he goes on through this to show that he had really no opportunities to, to speak to anyone else about this. He had never gone to see the apostles in Jerusalem and to talk about it. And so it seems like even he deliberately avoided other people so that could have taught him because he wanted to be sure everyone knew that this came directly from God. And so he didn't meet with the apostles in Jerusalem, and that shows that uh, he couldn't have come to his conclusions about doctrine on his own. Uh, he was just too deeply involved in his Judaism and his Phariseeism to, to have come to this 
conclusion that he did and suddenly change his mind and just switch his allegiances from his the religion that he grew up with to become a Christian. So God had to have spoken to him and called him directly to the apostleship or he would have still been out there killing Christians. So the question of apostleship is, is very important. If he's not been called in the same way that the rest of the apostles are called, and if it can be agreed upon that God spoke to him directly, then the issue of apostleship and all the doctrines that he taught, all of that is a settled question. So the first chapter deals with that independence. But here we see that the independence starts to hurt the argument because the Judaizers, who are the opponents, claimed that he was at odds with the apostles that were in Jerusalem. Now, again, Paul's argument is, I haven't been to Jerusalem to discuss this with them, not spend any extensive time with the apostles. And so what seems to be a point in his favor now becomes the argument of the Judaizers. In Acts chapter 15, they came to Jerusalem and said, or rather came to Antioch, and they said, Paul is not in agreement with the apostles in Jerusalem. We have been there. We've talked to the apostles. In fact, that's where we came from. And we know that the apostles in Jerusalem are teaching that Gentiles are going to have to be circumcised if they want to be saved. And so uh, this is the whole thing here. Paul's independence begins to work against him. Now, now something that I don't want you to get confused about, and and, uh, I hope that it's been uh, clear enough to you, that what we're reading about here is a response to the problem in, uh, that in, in Antioch at first. Paul is relating the story of what happened in Antioch when he confronted the Judaizers sometime before this. And he's writing back to the Galatians to explain to them how this conference took place and what the decision of that was and how that he, was, uh, he had been confronted with Judaizers before and had the issue resolved. But we want to notice here as we look at this that Paul was so steadfast in this that his refusal to compromise, that's a very important point, the refusal to compromise. Now, going back into Galatians 2, I want you to see that steadfast determination that Paul had against these lying Judaizers. And we see this righteous anger that's building up in him throughout the text and it becomes especially notable in, noticeable in verse number 4. He says, False brethren came to spy out our liberty and bring us into bondage. Now, false brethren, he says. And by the use of that word brethren, brethren, that's not in any way a conciliatory message here, conciliatory. It's, it's, not a, it's not that in any way, because what he's saying is these people that actually call themselves brethren. They're false, they're conniving, they're sneaking, they're traitors, they're turncoats, they're acting like Christian brothers when really what they're trying to do is to infiltrate the church for the purpose of destroying it. And so in verse number 5, and and I will paraphrase this for you in a dynamically equivalent way, he said, we did not listen to them, we didn't yield to them, we did not give them the time of day because we didn't want anyone to think that we were even for a moment contemplating a compromise with them. And he says, we wouldn't even give an inch on our doctrine. This is the gospel, it's the truth of it, and we're not giving up an inch of it. That's not the way, the ordinary way that Christian denominations act today, is it? I mean, all of the major denominations have made damaging compromises in order to keep keep the pews filled and in order to satisfy this great amount of diversity that they find in their congregations today. 
And so the gospel has become severely watered down and stripped of its power to save. So now every kind of heresy is admitted into the churches, and and really all a person has to do is say, well, I'm a Christian. And it doesn't matter what they believe. Uh, When they come and they want to join the church, they're invited for a tea and for a chat, and uh, it comes out with a statement like this. Instead of what Paul's conclusions are, their statement comes out, the body of Christ is big enough for everybody. Everybody is welcome in. And their, and their opinion is that the body is so big and so, so accommodating that you can deny the deity of Christ, that you can deny the blood atonement. You don't really have to believe in the substitutionary death of Christ. Those things are all right. You're still welcome in. But we see here how steadfast that Paul is. There is to be no compromise on the gospel. And in this trip to Jerusalem, he must find the apostles there as resolute on this as he was. He can't go there and hear the apostles tell him, now, Paul, what you really need to do is to calm down. You're upsetting everyone. How are we going to increase the number of members, members in our church if, in our churches if, if you're always making these problems and dealing with these things and being so inflexible in your doctrine. I mean, how can we grow our church if we're not inclusive of everybody? And so the modern church would say, now here, Paul, here's the latest survey and hand them Barna's statistics and say, this is what we really need to do. We have got to update the gospel. We've got to make some serious changing here. We've got to be more entertaining, more accommodating, less rigid. So we need to update it. And so... They tell him, people don't care about sin anymore, so let's don't talk about that. People don't care about hell. Don't speak about that. People feel bad about themselves, so don't tell them, you know, about total depravity and things like that. We want them to feel comfortable, so our doctrines and our methods have to change. Recently, I heard a sermon by John MacArthur that I wish all of you could hear. Uh, Gary had a copy of this. I think that I think it, this one came from Gary that uh, he gave me when we came back from the uh, conference uh, this past March. And I didn't have a copy of it, but he did. And so he gave it to me, and it was about the unbiblical methods of the church growth movement. And what he did was to take the book of Acts, and he went through it, and he showed how the church was just growing in leaps and bounds even though there was persecution right on the heels of Christians wherever they went. But the point is, did they stop preaching the gospel? And, and did they stop telling people to repent? How do you get people to join your church when they're certain for persecution, maybe even death? I mean, how do you get up at the end of a service, and they didn't actually do this in the Bible times, they didn't have an invitation like, like uh, 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 many churches do and what we do uh, often, they didn't have an invitation, but, but you can imagine them getting up at the end of the service and saying, come to Christ and sign your death warrant. How, how popular would that be? Who's going to join a church like that? And yet that's what's happening in Acts. The people could see what happens to people when they became Christians. But still the Bible says they came and they, they believed in the salvation of their souls and there was no attempt to make them feel better, no attempt to change the gospel, no attempt to be less offensive with what they taught. Now I was drawn to, the, to this particular illustration that MacArthur gave, which was the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. I know all of you are probably familiar that, with that. These are the two people that sold a piece of land and... Uh, 
came to the apostles and, and lied to them about, about what they'd received for it, what they'd sold it for. And so um, they came to the apostles, and it was their land. They could have done what they wanted to do with it. Uh, they could have kept the money, gave the money, gave part of the money. There was no requirement whatsoever. But what they did, they came to the apostles, and they lied, and they said, we have given all of it, all of it we've given Now, you know the story how Ananias lied, and so Peter spoke to him, and he said, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? He said, you have lied to God. And then Ananias was struck dead, fell down dead right there, and they came in and carried him out. Three hours later, his wife Sapphira came, and she didn't know what had happened. And so Peter said to her, did you sell the the land for so much money? She said, yes, we did. We gave it all. And Peter said to her, you have also lied to the Holy Spirit. And she fell down dead, and they carried her out. And then at the end of that narrative, in verse number 11 in Acts 5, it says, And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. But then you go on reading just three verses later, it says, And believers the more were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. Is that what you expect to happen? I mean, wouldn't the most likely thing that people would say is, that sure is a strict religion. I don't want any part of that because if the persecutors don't get you, the apostles will. So watch out for them. But that's not the case. Uh, Believers kept coming. People kept being saved. Thousands of people came to Christ. But the modern church takes the the opposite tack. They say, nobody's going to come to Christ. If we don't do something, if we don't make it easy, if we don't make it convenient, if we don't have coffee and donuts and we don't have chats with people and live bands and entertainment, then we just can't grow the church. I mean, we've got to make it so people can enjoy this environment that they're in. And MacArthur added to that, he said, that's the church of the tares. And you can fill up the church with all the tares that you want, but never make the mistake that they are really the people of God. So that's what Paul has to find when he goes to Jerusalem. He's got to find the apostles as strict, as rigid, as unbending as he was on this doctrine of justification. And if he doesn't find it that way, all is lost for him. Nobody's going to believe him. Everything he taught's gone in a heartbeat. And so the apostles in Jerusalem cannot be flexible. They cannot be compromising with the Judaizers. Now, as we will see later, this conference prove that the apostles were right in step with the apostle Paul all the way. And folks, this is the same way that we have to be. I mean, if we're going to remain a a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can't jump on uh, the the church growth bandwagon in order to try to get the church moving and get it to grow. We've got to do it in the right way. We can't do it by compromising the gospel that we believe, the old-time gospel that's been given to us. We can't change this to suit anybody. And the truth of the matter is, if it's the same gospel that the apostles preached, if we're maintaining that and the Holy Spirit is moving and convicting people, then it doesn't matter how hard Christianity is. It doesn't matter how difficult it becomes to people. It doesn't matter how much worldly stuff that people have to give up in order to to get in step with what God wants them to do. And it doesn't matter if Jesus says to them, you have to leave your father, your mother, your brothers, your sisters, and your children, all of them, if that becomes necessary, and follow me. That doesn't become a problem. Not when the Holy Spirit's working. Not when he's convicting people of their sins. They'll do it. They'll come to Christ because 
when people are brought to the saving knowledge of Christ and the Holy Spirit is convicting, a team of wild horses can't keep you away. It can't keep them away. I mean, I mean, how many of you could testify tonight that, that you were once in sin, you cared nothing at all about God going the opposite direction, but then when you heard about Christ and the Holy Spirit began to convict you that you couldn't do anything else but confess him? I mean, would you say that's true? I mean, nothing else at, but Christ at that point mattered. Nothing was going to keep you from Christ. You know, I've heard t- people talk about wanting to come to Christ so badly and under so much conviction that they couldn't even sit still in the pew to the end of a sermon. And they were resisting. They're holding on to the pew and their knuckles are turning white and their fingers are beginning to hurt because they don't want to, they don't want to. And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit breaks that and they can't wait to come to Christ. That's the story that many tell. I remember when I was saved, seven years old, I was sitting to the right-hand side of the pulpit to Chairs were arranged a little bit different than what we have here. But I'm sitting over here on the right-hand side. I'm just a young kid. And I heard my dad preaching. And the Holy Spirit got hold of me. And I wasn't staying there. I, would, I, I, I had to come. I had to believe in Christ. There was just no other choice. You know, I, I was talking to a preacher the other day. And, and I don't really want to go into all the details of this and to this doctrine tonight. But he said to me, the difference between you and me is that I believe the grace of God is resistible. Now, there's a whole lot to that argument. I said, I don't want to tackle that. But I'll just shorten up the stroke on that, and I'll say, I couldn't resist it. I didn't want to resist it. Now, for sure, I resisted all the time, and everybody else did. Everybody resists the grace of God. Everybody does. But there's that point where the Holy Spirit becomes effectual with the gospel in the sinner's heart, and he comes. He can't do anything else but come because God has drawn him with such powerful cords of love that he absolutely will not refuse to come to Christ. So that's what we have to preach to people. When the Holy Spirit is, when we preach to them the gospel, the Holy Spirit convicts them and they will come. Now, the next thing I want you to see is the righteous indignation of Paul. Now, we go on here to verse number 6, and this is one of those confusing verses. It says, But of these who seem to be somewhat whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Now, let me put that as simply as I can. Paul is here referring to the apostles in Jerusalem. Now, he was always confronted with this charge. He's not an apostle, and if he is an apostle, he's inferior to the ones that are in Jerusalem. And in some places of Scripture, he seems to agree with that. For instance, 1 Corinthians 15, he said, For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet or not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, that verse is, is a personal assessment. This is something that Paul does in his humility. This is not a decree from God. This is not God saying, you know, Paul, you're the worst of the bunch. You're the lowest of the apostles. Well, we, we couldn't even say that by, we couldn't say it by looking at what the Apostle Paul did and, and, and see all the, all the great things that he did for God and the way that he lived. And I, and I don't know, maybe all the Apostles turned out to be that way. But we don't see that from reading Scripture. I mean, we really can't say that from what we read in the Bible. It may very well be true. Verse number 6 is a sarcastic statement. And, it, and it's not meant to be with malice or jealousy towards the Apostles in Jerusalem. It's meant towards the Judaizers because they kept saying that he was inferior or that he was different from the other apostles. 
And they held the other apostles in Jerusalem in very high esteem, and they held no esteem for Paul. So the verse turns out to read like this. I went to see the ones, and this is, this is that New International Smith version again, so here's how it turns out. I went to see the ones that you think are the hot shots in Jerusalem, and these fellows that you think are so great added nothing to my understanding of the gospel. They didn't teach me anything new, and the fact that they had been with Christ and learned from him does not make them better than me. Now, again, it's important to understand Paul is talking sarcastically but not belittling the apostles in any way. He's just making a point here against the Judaizers and writing to the Galatians, making the point that he's sick and tired of putting up with all these crummy accusations. And he said, well, that's no way for Paul to act. And he, he shouldn't be that way. He should be patient, be understanding with people. These are just poor, mixed-up souls. Well, there comes a time when the enemies of the cross become clearly evident. I mean, you can tell that they're hell-bent on destroying the church or destroying a preacher's ministry, and you have to treat them as heathens and infidels. You have to treat them like demons of Satan. Now, you're not supposed to physically harm them. We're never told to do that in Scripture. But the Bible gives us a remedy for them. You put them out of the church. You're done with them. And so you don't let them continually tear up things from the inside because you're afraid, oh, we're going to hurt their feelings and, and, oh, they might not like us so well if we do this. They never liked you in the first place. You have to protect the house of God. So these are people that are subtle destroyers of the faith and they, and they work with the cunning deceit of Satan. So Paul's reaction towards them is to act sarcastically to get the point across. across. He's not casting a bad light on the other disciples, uh, apostles. This is his righteous indignation at their assessment of his apostleship. Well, in verses 7 and 9, 7 through 9, that I want to talk about next time, and we'll compare this to Acts chapter 15, he says the outcome of this trip is that these highly esteemed apostles that you think are so great, they agree with my doctrine of justification. They agree that I'm an apostle, and they believe and said that I am called to be an apostle to the Gentiles just as much as Peter was called to be an apostle to the Jews. Now, let me return, though, to this thought about the superiority of the apostles in Jerusalem. Paul interrupts himself in verse number 6, and he adds a parenthesis here, and this actually accentuates the sarcasm. He says, Whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. Now, you can find some good doctrine in the most obscure places. The Judaizers had their faith in the apostles. They had their faith not for what they in them not for what they taught, but simply for who the apostles were. That's the way it appears. In other words, Peter and John are great men because of the earthly relationship that they had with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They talked with him. Have you ever met a really famous person and you couldn't wait to tell somebody that you met them? You know, it's not uncommon for people to be name droppers. You meet somebody famous and you think, well, that makes me something too. And so you can't wait to go tell somebody that you met them. It's sort of like the other day, I met somebody that wasn't really famous. I just met somebody who knew somebody that was famous, and I felt pretty good about that. And so uh, I was coming home from San Diego and at Clarissa's house, and we stopped at a gas station, 
And my wife noticed that there was a man standing there, a tall man, by the way, and he had on a Kentucky basketball T-shirt. And that interested me. I mean, I, I, I couldn't resist this. I mean, there's somebody from God's country advertising the most awesome basketball team in the world. And, and so I, I couldn't resist just talking to him. So I told the guy, I said, hey, I'm from Kentucky too. And he said, oh, yeah? I said, well, my son plays for the basketball team. And I said, no way. And he said, way? And so I, I said, who, who, who? He said, Kyle Wilcher. And I said, awesome. I, I cannot believe that I met Kyle Wilcher's dad. And I couldn't wait to get home to tell Jared about it so he would be so envious of me because I'd met him. But that's a guy that he, he wasn't really famous. And most of, most of you probably don't have any idea who Kyle Wilcher is. I mean, even though he did play for the championship Kentucky Wildcat, uh, ch- uh, championship Kentucky Wildcat team 2012, uh, you probably never heard of him. He wasn't even a starter, but that's okay with me. I met somebody who knew Kyle Wilcher, uh, somebody that his dad, as a matter of fact. So then you look here, here in our text, there's James, James, the Lord's half-brother. Now, can you imagine knowing the Lord's half-brother, meeting him? That'd be something, wouldn't it? Get up close to the half-brother of Jesus. You know, I, uh, back in 2000, when, when George Bush was running, was that the first? That was the first time, wasn't it? 2000? First time he was running for president, that his brother, Jeb Bush, came to Napa when we were living over there. And I met Jeb Bush. I shook his hand. He signed the campaign poster for me and all of that. And you can think of that like you want. That's okay. But I met somebody that was famous. Well, this is better than meeting Jeb Bush and better than meeting Kyle Wilcher's dad. If you met James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, that would be something. So the Judaizers idolize the apostles. They had this closeness to Jesus. And it's not really that they care so much about what they taught. They just know these apostles. Now, what Paul says here, this is what God doesn't do. God does not do this. God doesn't look at a person and say, well, this one's a real keeper. I've got to save him. He's better than all the rest. And some people think that about themselves, that God must save me because I'm just better than everybody else. And what does Paul say? God accepts no man's person. So he doesn't care who you are. You know, I gave the illustration a few days ago. I mean, it doesn't matter if you've got a $500,000 job and you live at the top of Fountain Grove in a $3 million house. God doesn't care about that. I care about that. I really do because that's 50000 in ties if we can get that guy. So I care about that. But God doesn't care about that. He, he doesn't look at anybody and say, you know, I, I really need that one. He looks at all of us as just vile, filthy sinners. And the rich and the famous among us are sometimes the very worst of all. What did Jesus say? The rich man died and went to hell. And the end of his conversation with the rich young ruler, you remember what that is? How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. God never looks at the person. Everybody's a peon compared to him. We have nothing that God wants. So the truth of the matter is that God doesn't save you for who you are. He saves you for who Christ is because Christ died for his people. And God says, if it's not for my son and what he did for you, I can't have anything to do with you at all. It's because of what he did. Now, that doesn't mean the Father doesn't love us and in the beginning doesn't, didn't love us because he did. But everything that's done in salvation is for the sake of Christ. God recognizes us in him and no other way. 
And you know it works both ways? You don't want God to be a respecter of persons. You really don't. Because you look at yourself, and I look at myself and say, whoa, if I have to be something, there's no chance for me. I'm not rich. I'm not famous. I mean, I can drain my bank account by going to the gas station. I mean, I plug the hose into the, into the, out of the pump into the tank, and, the, and it starts ringing up, and the gas starts filling up. My bank account keeps going. And by the time I'm done, I don't have any money left. I don't have anything. Thank God you don't have to be somebody to be saved. God, God you, you have to come to the point that you realize that you're nobody. You're, you're just nobody. No matter what you have or you don't have, you don't deserve to be saved. God saves you for Christ's sake. So the point of Paul adding this parenthesis is to say that God doesn't accept any man's person and neither do I. So why? Because he's saying, I didn't go to Jerusalem to buddy up with the apostles. I went there not to say, look who I've been with so that you would respect me because of that, because he doesn't care. He wouldn't have gone to Jerusalem in the first place. He's not a less apostle than they are. He went to establish the fact that there is unity in the faith. I think that he went, I mean, all the way back here these years before, uh, when these Judaizers came to Antioch, I think that Paul went because he knew what he would find when he went to Jerusalem. He knew they would be steadfast. He knew that they would be uncompromising. You know how he knew that? He knew that because they were called to be apostles of Christ and he was sure of his own calling. And God's not going to call one and tell him one thing and tell somebody else something else. He knows what the apostles are going to say. I firmly believe that. And so this is for the benefit of those Judaizers. And now it's for the benefit of these churches in Galatia that have the question. So he says, don't count my independence against me. I went to Jerusalem, and guess what? They agree with me. There never was a division. We, we never had a discussion about it before, but we had one, and we found out everybody is on the same page. Now, next time, we're going to come back and look a little bit more closely at that conference. We're going to begin to, to break, start to break things down about what happened in Acts chapter 15 and how this whole issue was decided. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for time spent in your word tonight. And uh, we, we believe all these things are important for us to learn and to know. They wouldn't be in your word if you didn't intend for us to learn them and, and to find the truths that lie behind them and how they will help to build our own faith and our dependence upon you. Lord, help us tonight and uh, bless each one who's come out for the study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.